how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is John, part two. Uh, one little correction I've been asked to make on the first talk, and I'd gladly make it. I said that uh, the creed is believing that, whereas, of course, in actual fact, it uses the words, I believe in. But in fact, if you read the creed, it's all on that. And there's no expression of trust or obedience in the creed. It's believing that, but in fact, it does use the word in, but I'm sure you'll appreciate the difference. It's believing that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and so on. And there's no expression of this in the creed at all, so it's not technically believing in. And there are plenty of people say the creed who don't trust and obey Jesus. That's the point I was trying to make. Well, now let's come on here. In Ephesus, two things were happening. First of all, there was too high a view of John the Baptist not John the Gospel writer, John the Baptizer, or as he was better known, John the Plunger, John the Dipper, because uh, Baptizer is simply a nickname and the word means to plunge or to dip or to sink or to soak and he was John the Plunger, John the Sinker. Uh, and there was, we know from Acts 19, that for some reason there was a whole group of people in Ephesus who were followers of John the Baptist. And Paul had to correct some of them and say, John told you to believe in the one coming after him. But I'm afraid that John denomination persisted, whether they were called the Johnites or the whatever. We often develop these names, Lutheran, Wesleyan. Don't ever use names like that. We're Christian and that's the only name we want to use among us. But they were followers of John the Baptist. And so John set out to write a gospel that would correct too high a view of John. And every time he mentions John, he puts him down. He says John was not the light. He only pointed to the light. He says John did no miracles. And he keeps putting him down. In fact, he says John himself put himself down and said he must increase and I must decrease. He's the bridegroom, I'm just the best man. And so running through John's Gospel is this correction of too high a view of John the Baptist and he was in a sense trying to kill the denomination that was built around John the Baptist. If you want a modern example of such a group, I would talk about the Oxford group or the Moral Rearmament, the MRA as it's known. It's very, very similar to John's ministry of repentance and uh, morality, uh, but it, uh, I think, has lost uh, a Christian dimension. It seeks to clean people up morally, but it doesn't have that same emphasis on the Holy Spirit's power and the Lord Jesus' atonement as it maybe had in the early days. Uh, so it's possible for people to have a high moral attitude and to put a stress on repentance and be followers of John. And it was roughly that kind of group that there was in Ephesus. So too high a view of John, but much more serious was the fact that in Ephesus they were already holding too low a view of Jesus. Now you see, John the Baptist had said two things about Jesus. He will be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world 
and he will be the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now we must preach both because if you just talk about taking sins away, you leave people empty and that's very dangerous apart from being miserable. An awful lot of people in the world have had their sins taken away but who've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So they can't enjoy the pleasures of sin and they can't enjoy <laughs> the pleasures of heaven either. No wonder they every week call themselves miserable sinners in church because it really, it, it's, it's miserable to be in that position, isn't it? To have all your sins taken away so you can't enjoy them anymore and to be empty and just be a goody-goody and that's not Jesus' intention. He doesn't want to empty your life, he wants to fill it, but he's got to take bad things out of it so he can put the good things in. John the Baptist said, he can do that for you, I can't. I can only wash you in water to get your past clean, but your future I can't do anything about. He's the one who will deal with that. But too low a view of Jesus. Now again, Greek philosophy was having too much of an influence on Christian thinking. The Greeks somehow divided reality into two parts and couldn't get them together. They divided reality into physical and spiritual. We're still suffering from that in the church. Physical things can be spiritual and the Greeks divided the temporal and the eternal. They divided the sacred and the secular. That's the most dangerous one. I will never let a Christian tell me he's in a secular job. I say, you're not, you're in full-time Christian service, whatever your job is. But the sacred and secular thing we divide up and because they divided the spiritual from the physical and never got them together, Plato said the spiritual is more real, Aristotle said the physical is more real. He was the first to teach evolution incidentally. But because those two things they could never get together, then they couldn't get it together in Jesus either. Do you follow me? Jesus couldn't be both God and man at the same time because those two things can't ever be one in Greek thinking. Heaven and earth can never get together. Spiritual and physical can't get together. God and man can't be one, not in one person. And so they developed a number of variations. The question is which side of reality was Jesus? Was he divine or human? And some said he, he is more divine than human. And actually he never really was human, he just appeared as a human being. We call this heresy docetism, a word which means phantom. And it's the belief that Jesus was God in phantom form. He just appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. He didn't go to the toilet, for example. Yet Jesus talked about that. And he did empty his bowels and bladder as we have to. You're shocked by my mentioning that. In the book of prayers for Jews, there's a lovely prayer to pray when you go to the loo. <laughs> And it's a prayer that thanks God that your body's working and for the relief it's brought and that you feel better, hallelujah. <laughs> now, I, I've been in toilets, I've been in toilets whose walls are plastered with texts and not one of them is relevant to what I'm engaged in. <laughs> but you see, to Hebrews, to Hebrews, all of life, and I tell you this, when you're old and that part of your body doesn't work, you'll wish you praised God when it was working. But you see, to us it's not spiritual and that's because we're thinking like Greeks, not Hebrews. You see, we can't get the physical and the spiritual into integrated reality and therefore if Jesus was both human and divine, no, he can't be, he can't be both. So some said he's more divine than human and only appeared as a human. Others said he's more human than divine. 
He was a man who perfectly responded to God and developed fully the capacity of the divine that's in all of us. Do you know that's the most common heresy being taught in our theological colleges today? And if you know men like Professor John Hick of Birmingham University who wrote The Myth of God Incarnate, this is what is destroying the faith of young men who go into our theological cemeteries full of faith. They come out dead and now you know why. It's a very common this that he was the man for others. Have you heard that phrase? It's being used freely on the BBC. The man, more human than divine, a man who responded to God better than any. We call this adoptionism, that Jesus was only adopted as God's Son. It's usually said he was adopted at his baptism, but he wasn't. He was the only begotten. We're the adopted ones. So these heresies keep popping up. The third one, he was partly human and partly divine. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses' view of Jesus. Jesus is a demigod, semi-human. He's somewhere in between. Can't be both, but he's somewhere in between, somewhere there. And you check out with your nearest Jehovah's Witness and they can't cope with the first three verses of John's Gospel, so they've changed it in their Bible. We'll come back to that in a moment. That's a very common one today. The truth is, that final one, that actually I think should be an exclamation mark. So don't put a question mark there, that's an exclamation mark. He is fully divine and fully human. He is both. And if he wasn't fully divine and fully human, he could not do for you what you need to have done for you. See, the two things Jesus does for us is he reveals God to us and he reconciles us to God. And he could do neither of those unless he was fully human and fully divine. And that's the truth we must hold on to. It's being eroded and attacked inside the church now on a wide scale. And yet that is the truth that John said, I knew him, I lay on his bosom at meals, I was closer to him than anyone else. I've known him for 63 years and I know the truth. He was totally human and totally divine. That's the message. That's why he wrote to correct this view of Jesus. And that's why we have in the fourth gospel an emphasis on his full humanity. Jesus is actually more human in the fourth gospel than the other three. The greater emphasis on his real humanity. For example, the shortest verse in the Bible is in John's Gospel. Do you know it? Jesus wept. And that's almost become a swear word in some circles. You just say Jesus wept when they hit the wrong nail with a hammer, you know? But actually, that one verse tells you how human Jesus was. He was standing at the grave of one of his best friends and he wept. He was that human. And it's in John's Gospel that we have this emphasis on Jesus being hungry and thirsty and needing a drink and tired and surprised, very human. No wonder that in this Gospel Pilate says, Behold the man. That's a very significant phrase, the man, the man. If you want to know what humanity really is like, then look at this man. And above all, in John's Gospel, Jesus' prayer life comes out. 
was more about Jesus praying, which is telling us he was so really human that he had to pray, he had to depend on his Father for what he said and for what he did and for everything. He was so human he couldn't have survived without that. And some of his most beautiful prayers are in this Gospel, John 17, his prayer for unity. But the main emphasis in John is on his full divinity. While he emphasises full humanity, this is the thing that was gradually being eroded so that Jesus was slightly less than fully divine and then a bit more less than fully divine and being brought slowly down the ladder. And One of the results of this was to put Jesus on the side of being a creature rather than a creator which is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe that Jesus was the first creature created by God. Now when you put Jesus on the creature side of reality rather than the creator side, you have distorted the truth because he belongs the other side of the line. Again, we'll come back to that. So how does John make his case for the full divinity of Christ? The answer is this magic number seven which is the perfect number in Hebrew thinking. If you want a perfect round number in Hebrew, it's always seven. It's not in our figuring, but it was in Hebrew thinking. And it, it's probably the most important number in the Bible. And anything that falls short of that is less than perfect. 666 would be less than perfect. Do you understand something there? But 777, now that's something and we have seven, seven, seven. Se three perfect pieces of evidence for Jesus' divinity. First of all, seven witnesses. There are seven people called Jesus, the Son of God, in this Gospel. John the Baptist does, Nathaniel does, Jesus himself does, Peter does, Martha does, did you know that she was the first woman to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Peter was the first man, but Martha was the first woman. She wasn't just good at Delia Smith recipes, she was also spiritually discerning. And Thomas, and of course John, the beloved apostle. Seven witnesses. Now in Jewish law, two or three witnesses would be enough, but here are seven. You've got the perfect number of people to testify he is the Son of the living God. Not only do we have seven witnesses, and by the way, the word witness is a vital word. It's used 50 times in the fourth Gospel. Witness, 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 witness. What he's saying is we've got personal testimony <coughs> to this truth. Now the seven works he has chosen very carefully of all the things Jesus did. He's singled out only seven miracles. And when you ask why is he singled out these, it's because these are the most supernatural miracles that he did. They're the most sensational. They're the most godlike miracles. Now, casting out demons, that's something that plenty of people were doing in the ancient world. Even the Pharisees did that. So that's not godlike. So that's why he has no mention of casting out demons here. But what he has is water into wine. Now, let's see all the psychosomatics do that. See? That's a godlike miracle. See? That's something only God could do. The healing he mentions, the nobleman's son, 
He singles out that one because that was the one miracle of healing that Jesus did miles from the sick person. He wasn't laying on the hands so that electricity went through his fingers or whatever and all these psychosomatic healings. Jesus healed the nobleman's son at a distance. He just said, I don't need to come, be healed. And when the man got home at that very minute, he was healed. He said, what time was it when Jesus said that? And he took them. He said, that was the very minute and the child was healed. Now that's a godlike thing to do, to span the distance. And then the cripple at Bethesda, he'd been there 38 years. That's a pretty chronic condition. You know? Feeding the 5,000, that's the one that uh, all the four Gospels have. That was pretty spectacular. That was created from two sardines and five bread rolls and he just created in his hands. That's a godlike miracle. That's not your psychosomatic stuff, is it? Walking on water. The blind man blind from birth. From birth. This isn't a condition that has come on. This is a hereditary condition. It's been there all along. And finally, Lazarus. This wasn't the widow of Nain's son who just died that day or Jairus's daughter who just died. This man was stinking in his grave four days. Now you see, what John is saying is, if you can't see what these are saying, what are they signs of? They're pointing to his divinity. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, no man could do the things you do unless God was with him. See, that's the message of John. Those seven miracles, if we knew no more, would tell you that Jesus was fully divine, that God was with him. And finally, the seven words. Now, now Jesus, it was what he said about himself. Jesus was always talking about himself. Do you like people who are always talking about themselves? I don't like them, I want them to talk about me, but they will talk about themselves, you know? <laughs> and they're always beginning, I, I, I've just done this, I've just had a holiday here, I've just bought a new car, I, I, I. Jesus was always talking about himself, but there were seven things he said that were absolutely unique. I am the bread of heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Now, even we say, I am. You know, who does he think he is? Jesus even once said, I am humble. Now you just try that at work and see how, see how you get on. And Jesus got away with it. I am humble. But the titles he gave himself, by the way, Jesus has 250 names and titles. Nobody in history has ever had so many. The most names a God has is Allah who has 99 names, but Father isn't one of them and love isn't one of them, but Jesus has 250 and many of them he gave himself. But the key to it is this I am because in Hebrew that sounds like Yahweh, Yahweh the bread of heaven, Yahweh the light of the world. And they began to say, does he think he's God? Why does he keep using that, that word? And then one day when they said to him, we know who our father is, you don't. 
Are we right in thinking your father was a Samaritan? That was one of the rumours, you see. And he said, no, I know my father. You don't know yours. They said, we do. Abraham is our father. He said, he's not. The devil is your father. That's why you're trying to murder me. That's why you tell lies about me, because your father is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And when he tells lies, he speaks his native language. He said, if you were sons of Abraham, you would have the same attitude to me that Abraham had. You would love me. You would listen to me. Abraham was thrilled to see me come, and yet you're not. You can't be his sons. And they said, Abraham's been dead 2,000 years and you're not 50 years old. How can you possibly know Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, Yahweh, I am. And that, of course, was at his trial what finished the case. They couldn't get two or three witnesses to agree on what Jesus had actually said, but the judge finally incriminated him from his own mouth, which is illegal. And he swore him to speak. He said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us who you are. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, Yahweh. And the high priest rent his clothes and said, how many witnesses have we now? Seventy. You all heard it. And it was on that ground that he was condemned to die. Well now, that, those seven words are scattered through John's Gospel and are crucial to his case. The other synoptics miss them all. But you see, John's interest in Jesus was in who he was, not in what he did or what he said. And therefore he noticed those and he stored them up in his memory and he wrote them down for us. Well now that's his testimony to Jesus. And then he does something beautiful. When Mark wrote his account of Jesus, he said, I'm going to begin when Jesus was 30 years of age because that's when he sprang into public view. Matthew wrote the next Gospel to be written. He said, no, you've got to go further back than that. You've got to go back to his birth, his conception, and because he was a Jew, you must go back to Abraham. I'm going to start the story of Jesus with Abraham. Luke came along third and he said, no, he said, Jesus was the man, he was a human being, he, he belongs to the whole human race, I'm going to start with Adam. That's where you start the story of Jesus, with Adam. John came along, he said, you're all three wrong. He said, I'm going to start at the beginning. <laughs> and he took the words from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, and he said, in the beginning, he was already there. The word already was. And so we come to this intriguing question. What do you call Jesus before he was born? See, we're so used to calling him Jesus that we forget that that was a brand new name given at the moment when he became man. But he wasn't called that before. God never called him Jesus. So what was he before? And when John wrote his Gospel and began at the beginning, or as far back as human thinking can go, which is to the beginning of our universe, we can't imagine before that, so you can't even say anything before that. So he went right back to the beginning of history and he said at the very beginning he was already there, but what do we call him? And then comes this unique name to John's Gospel, the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. Now that is an amazing title. It's not used by anyone else in the whole Bible of the Son of God, and yet John carefully used it. Why? What does it mean? 
Again, it's a bit unfortunate that in most of our Bibles it's simply translated the word, but at least they've got in the definite article the. It's, Jesus wasn't just a word, but the word, but there's more to it than that, much more. What is a word? You know, I'm sure some of you will be saying to me over lunch or sometime, could I just have a word? Well, if that's all you want, I'll just say logos and we'll leave it there. <laughs> you see, what, what's a word? What's a word? It's, a word is simply an express thought that comes out of my mouth and into your ear. Is Jesus just something that came out of God's mouth into our ear? No, he's much, much more than that. This word has a history. You remember I told you John lived and died ultimately in a place called Ephesus in western Turkey? Well, that's very significant because in Ephesus, 600 years before John was writing this, in 568 BC, there lived a man in Ephesus called Heraclitus, H-E-R-A-C-L-I-T-U-S, and Heraclitus was the founder of science. And Heraclitus was a keen observer and he never grew out of his little boy's habit of asking why. Now little children are always saying, why daddy? Why mummy? Why? Why? Till you get tired of it. But I hope you never grow out of that. Don't think I have. I keep asking why. Why was this book written? Why, why is this said? Why, why, why? Now Heraclitus was like that and he said, what you need to do is to train your senses of sight and hearing and touch to observe what's going on around you and then you must ask, why does that behave the way it behaves? You must ask it of the weather and the clouds, you must ask it about the animals, you must ask it about human beings. Why do they behave like that? And he coined this phrase, the reason why, only he didn't speak English. He called it the Logos and he said the Logos is the reason why. He said you must always try and look for the Logos in anything. So when you study life, bios, look for the Logos in bios, look for the biologos, look for biology. When you study the weather, look for meteorologos, meteorology. You know Maureen Lipman's British Telecom advertisement? To her nephew she says, so you got an ology. <laughs> He's got a degree in something, you see, and every branch of science is looking for the Logos, the reason why things are as they are. You follow me? So when you study how the human psyche behaves, you call it psychologos, psychology. When you look at how society behaves, you call it sociologos, sociology. Every branch of science is based on Heraclitus Logos, the reason why. But of course the snag with science is it only looks at a tiny part of reality. It looks at bios or animals, zoos or psyche or socio, whatever, and you only find out the reason why in a very small part of reality. And in fact, it's so specialised now that scientists know more and more about less and less. And they're finding the Logos in an ever-narrowing field that develops its own jargon and language, which cuts them off from everybody else. But you see, John is saying you've got to ask about the reason why behind the whole lot. What's the reason why it's all here? The answer is Jesus. Isn't that exciting? Again, you can whisper hallelujah if you like. <laughs> but you see, 
All this was made as a present from God to his Son, and it's all for Jesus. That's the reason why we're here. It's all going to be summed up in him. He's the reason why he's the Logos. I find that an exciting concept. You may know the reason why computers behave as they do or the reason why animals behave as they do. See, David Attenborough knows so much about the reason why in nature, but he doesn't know the reason why it's all there. See, but we do. And the reason why is Jesus. Isn't that exciting? He's the Logos. But that word had another phase in its history. It crossed the Mediterranean Sea and it went to Alexandria, which was a centre, a university town, which combined Greek and Hebrew thinking because there were many dispersed Jews living in Alexandria and in the university, many professors, and one in particular, a professor of philosophy called Philo, P-H-I-L-O. And it was in that university they translated the Old Testament into Greek. Seventy scholars in that university did it together, and so it's called the Septuagint, or sometimes it's called the LXX <coughs> because of those 70 scholars in the University of Alexandria who translated. So they were seeking to interpret Hebrew thinking into Greek, and Philo, Professor Philo, seized on this word logos, and he said, the logos, we should not talk about it but he. Now he didn't mean the Logos was a person, he was personifying it, that's all. But he said it's more than a thing, the reason why is more than a thing, we can personify it. Now personifying a thing is when you talk about your car as she, yeah? or oh, she's really running well today. Now you didn't think your car was female, did you? No. I mean you might have been driving a male van for example, but uh, <laughs> all right, but you see, to, to, I'm just seeing if you're awake. Uh, to personify, to personify something. We gave our first car a name. It was a little um, Austin 7, 1928. It was a pram on wheels, you know, with a lawnmower engine. And we called it Dorcas because she was full of good works. And uh, we were personifying it, you see. We weren't kidding ourselves it was a person, but we had given it a character. And it was no longer an it. Now, you see, that's what Philo did with Logos. He said, it's not an it. Wisdom is personified in Hebrew thinking as, as a woman. Seek her. She is the woman you need, wisdom. Seek her in the streets and so on. Uh, Book of Proverbs does that. But Logos was personified in a male form. He runs she. And so John was able to take the reason why of Heraclitus and the personified he of Philo and say, I can take that word one step further, his name is Jesus. See how the word came together? And uh, it's a very exciting word. Uh, before we finish this, maybe I'll read just a little of John's Gospel to you. What John says in the first page of his Gospel, he says four absolutely vital things about the Logos. Number one, his eternity. In the beginning, the Logos was already there. Second, his personality. The second statement he makes is, and the Logos was face to face with God. That's the literal translation. It's the word you use of two people who are just looking into each other's eyes and loving each other. Face to face. 
a relationship. Do you realise that we're the only people on earth who can say God is love? Because we're the only people who believe that God is three in one. If God was only one person, as the Jews and the Muslims believe, you can't say he is love because love is impossible for one person. But if God is more than one person, if he's Father and Son loving each other, you can say he is love and always was love. See the importance of this? So the Logos was eternal, the Logos is also personal, not an it but a full he. Thirdly, the deity and the Logos was God. In the beginning the Logos was already there and the Logos was face to face with God in a personal relationship and the Logos was God and that's where the Jehovah's Witnesses get stuck. And that's the phrase they change in their Bible, to the Logos was a God. That makes all the difference. The Logos was God, fully divine. And then comes this incredible fourth statement, and the Logos became flesh and pitched his tent among us and we beheld his glory, glory such as you would only see in the only begotten Son of the Father. Now that's a tremendous opening. That's why I don't give John's Gospel to unbelievers. What unbeliever can begin to understand that? I hope that you're understanding it better now than you did before you came here. Well now let's just look at this matter of life. Believing in Him, the Logos, as the Son of God and going on believing in Him, you will go on having life. And John draws a series of contrasts as to what that will mean for you. You will know life rather than death. In fact, you won't see death. That life will just continue through because death can't touch it. It's a life of life, not a life of death. Everybody else, every beat of their heart is a drumbeat on their march to the grave. But we're living life, not death. We will not walk in darkness. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And the darkness there is moral darkness. You walk with me and you won't be in things that you have to hide. You walk in the light. Everything above board, no secrets, everything out in the light. You will be living a life of truth and not lies. That's another contrast that comes all the way through John's Gospel. It's truth, reality, and the word true and the word real are the same in the Hebrew and the Greek. So truth and reality are the same. You'll be living in reality. You'll be living in freedom. Oh, I think I've got that wrong way round, haven't I? Turn those round. You'll be living in freedom, not slavery. And the Jews said to Jesus, we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you claim to set us free? Well, what short memories they had never been slaves of anyone. Had they forgotten about Egypt? Did they not still celebrate Passover every year? Yet they thought they were free and Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin because every time you sin you help to strengthen a chain of habit that will be your master and I've come to set you free. So what a life we're living, a life of life, a life of light, a life of truth, a life of freedom, and above all, there's a contrast between love and wrath. You either live in God's love or you live under His wrath. And with all the consequences that brings. So, what is life? Sorry, what is life? Life is to know, personally know, the Father 
and the Son whom he has sent. But you'll get to know the Father through the Son. Now just a minute, how can we possibly live this kind of life? That's beyond us. Well, the answer is that no Gospel tells you as much about the Holy Spirit as John's Gospel does. And it's through the Holy Spirit that you enjoy this life. And John knew this. And so if you go quickly through John's Gospel, in chapter 1 he says Jesus will, will be baptised with the Holy Spirit and will be the baptiser in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3 he talks about being born of the Spirit, born again, born out of water and Spirit, the two baptisms we need, water and Spirit, born out of that we enter the Kingdom. Chapter 4 he talks about living water and worship in Spirit and in truth. Chapter 7, he goes to the Feast of Tabernacles and on the last day of Tabernacles they prayed for rain because every year they've had six months with not a drop of rain and in September, October they want to see the early rains come back. So on the last day of the feast they fill up a great pitcher with water at the pool of Siloam, Siloam and they carry it up to the temple and pour it on the altar and pray for rain and when they did that on the last day of the feast Jesus stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty let him come to me and I will give him springs of living water, springs gushing up in his innermost being. He was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Chapters 14 to 16 are full of the new comforter that's going to come, the Spirit of Truth, the paraclete, that's the Greek word, it means para, beside, kletos, called, the one who stands by you, the one who's called alongside you, the one who'll stand by you, the one who'll comfort you, make you into a fortress another comforter just like Jesus. And finally, chapter 10, he prepared them for Pentecost by giving them a sign and a command. The sign he blew on each of them. He went round and then he said, now receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive anything at that moment. It was a rehearsal for Pentecost. If that were the moment when they received, he'd have blown on them after he commanded them to receive, but he didn't. He blew on them, then he said, now receive. And the next thing they knew, a few weeks later, they were seated in the temple and they heard, it's Jesus blowing on us, now let us receive. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and lived this eternal life, this abundant life which Jesus came to bring. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.